a lot of what we're fed is is really just ignorance, which is designed to make us believe that uh, you know that the system is always going to succeed. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today, we're going to dig into the various economies in the real estate marketplace. Yes, real estate is driven through all sorts of economics. Most of the time, we tend to hear about really traditional economics, things like interest rates, the jobless rate, the idea of inflation. But today I want to dig into some of the deeper economies inside of the real estate marketplace. So you can start to think about how you shape your portfolio. And of course, a big part of my job is simply sharing information. Today, I want to go through some of the economies that affect what is going on inside of real estate, both for good reasons and not so good reasons. Hey, welcome back, you crazy urban property investors. I hope you are enjoying the podcast. And of course, if it's your first time tuning in, hey, you've come to the right place. Play the program in double speed, though, because my podcasts tend to waffle on. Yes, uh, I can go for hours talking about real estate. In fact, uh, if anyone's ever spent time with me, I've got... uh, a few nutters that love what I do in real estate. We we can go around uh, for 12 hours talking about real estate on buses and things like that. So yes, I'm a mouthpiece of property. Hey, uh, of course, all my shows are lessons on real estate. So feel free to go back if you want to talk or hear about other types of ways to think about real estate. But today, We're going to dig into economics. Yes, are you ready to go on an economic journey? I hope so. If so, you've come to the right podcast. So the real estate market's made up of all sorts of economies. We've got the fire economy. We've got the urban behavioral economy. We've got the global economy, uh, which is doing all sorts of things and always morphing and changing. We also have, uh, by way of example, uh, future economics, the green economy, all sorts of economies interfacing with us as property owners. And really, probably the one economy which seemingly always stands out from the crowd is what is known as the command economy. So we'll go through some of the ideas and principles around Uh, the economics of these economies so that you can start to think about how you invest, what potentially roadblocks may come your way, what hazards are out there when it comes to economics. Now, I'm on record by saying probably the big, big risks in real estate when it comes to future investment is economies which are basically going to stall. And one of those economies, if you like, is connected to population economics. We do have 
what is known as the fire economy. The fire economy is connected to the population economy. And population economics is just an interesting kind of way to understand the health of an overall economy. Real estate is just one part of a much larger puzzle, but to produce uh, an, an economic result for your country, you can innovate, you can increase your production, you can sell resources, and of course, you can increase your population base. And here in Australia, we love the idea that we are always increasing our population base. Now, many economies around the world are inverted when it comes to their population. So from a global economic output point of view, some countries are upside down at the moment. Now, if we think about, for example, China, China in the 1970s began a one-child policy. And of course, what this is going to do is eventually half China's population. And uh, for many people living in mainland China today, they are the sole breadwinner and, of course, are looking after not only children but also adults in their economy. And, of course, this has a huge impact on productivity. Obviously, if you're going to uh, have two people breed one person, you're going to have the result of 50% less people. So many economies around the world, if you think about their population base, if you were to imagine an upside down triangle, rather like a pyramid upside down, at the bottom of the pyramid upside down, you've got a small amount of young people. At the top, you've got uh, a huge amount of old people. And ultimately, those type of economies begin to fail economically because there just isn't enough human beings at the bottom to pay for the unproductive, much older people who can't physically work at the top. Australia's model has always got around this problem that the world has an aging population base by bringing migrants. And of course, migration is one of the tools of economic growth here in Australia. We uh, know that really the most unproductive people are at the top of the food chain when it comes to age and also the bottom of the food chain when it comes to age. So in other words, those aged between 0 and 20 don't produce anything for the economy. They just suck the life out of people's back pockets. People who are on the pension and much older have served their country, uh, but they are not producing any more services or money for the economy. They just drain the economy. So interesting enough, uh, when we think about uh, how Australia works, we go off and steal people from other places and rehome them here in Australia. We do that to avoid having the inverted triangle or inverted pyramid. So our pyramid rather looks rather healthy. We have ample amount of people at the bottom. And of course, a lot of people are 
in an aging population base at the moment. Roughly, we would probably more look like a square at the moment than an inverted triangle. There's sort of an aging population which is unfolding, but we are fast-tracking migration at the bottom and obviously have a continuous workforce in the middle. It's a very important principle, the idea of having enough population in your economy of working age because ultimately that produces an economic outcome. Money circulates, money flows. And of course, here in Australia, we are very good at cheating the world system. We rob from others to pay for ourselves and create a rather multicultural place in doing so. But also it serves another purpose, which connects to another economy in real estate known as the fire economy. The fire economy is just the concept that in a country, certain big companies actually run the way society works. Now here, particularly on the east coast of Australia, we are run as a fire economy. Now the fire economy is finance, i.e. banks, insurers, and uh, real estate companies, larger REITs. So if you go into Sydney CBD, you'll see the head office of global banks, the fire economy, you will see global insurers, and you will see global real estate companies, all located and domiciled in CBDs. The same can be said in other CBDs. If you went to Melbourne, you would see a very similar footprint. Now, the concept here is that the fire companies really dominate how uh, how economic productivity works. And really, the model is an interesting one. Obviously, banks want to sell loans, insurers want to sell insurance, and real estate companies want to sell real estate. So the fire economy links with the idea of government's population growth. Bring more people here, sell them more houses, they'll obviously borrow more money, take out insurance, and economically, the system works. And of course, uh, we saw this off the back of COVID. When COVID hit, government at the time, the federal government, stimulated the housing market because they knew housing is the centrepiece of Australian East Coast economics. And of course, uh, what unfolded was to stimulate the jobs of society, the government of the day, Scott Morrison's government, created Home Builder, a boost to go and buy a house to use the fire economy. And of course, uh, a lot of people did that, went and bought a home or invested in real estate. And uh, really, the, the principle of the fire economy is you get people buying real estate and the spin-off jobs of that is our society. So, of course, uh, you buy a house, so then you need furniture. You've got to go and buy some furniture. 
Um, you might use a real estate agent uh, to to buy and sell the, the home. Uh, then you're going to need a gardener. A gardener's going to have to garden the garden. Someone building the home uh, just hurt their back. The, the builder, the plumber just hurt their back, so they go to the chiropractor. And you get this circular flow of money, a, a very much a circular economy. So here in Australia, fire economics is really in charge what is what Australians on the East Coast do, which is services. What government does is prop up fire economics. So what they often do is look at a town which really has no real industry and position a government department in that town to make sure that there is also government stimulus propping up the existence of the township. So I've always been very mindful and one of the risks that I do not like about Australian economics is the Ponzi scheme of migration, economics combined with fire economics combined with government department just put in a town to prop it up. It's basically a circular economy of nothing. No one really has a real job. There is no real industry. And uh, really, it's almost like this idea of just fabricating something. Bring people here, sell them a house, send them to a little town with nothing in it. They'll work in a circular economy because the housing market stimulates the circular economy and that township will be propped up by a government hospital or department of some type. So I play the fire economy. There's nothing anyone can do about the fire economy. It's just the understanding that you need to know about it. Now, I believe that the best way to hedge against fire economics is to buy next to the fire department. The fire department is the CBD. The CBD is where all of the bankers work, all of the major insurers work, and of course, all of the major realtors work as well. And when we think about the major REITs, these are huge companies. These are connected to government. These are in charge of the supply of Australian real estate, your lend leases, your uh, Mervacs. These are, these are the companies that really dominate Australian real estate as a supply mechanism. So I'm always a believer that you are... Uh, Try and get as close economically as to where the fire department is. And the reason being is, of course, generally people don't want to self-sabotage their own world. They don't want to ruin their own game, so to speak. And no different to being, uh, you know, close to Wall Street inside of Manhattan. The same concept in Australian real estate. To facilitate what that looks like, I tend to focus on buying real estate in our bigger cities, our top 10 cities, because the fire department uh, looks after those places first. And really, the fire chief of the fire department is also connected to government. This is where we get the wealth effect out of real estate, command-led 
economics. So we have the fire economy, we have the population economy, and we have the command economy. The command economy, of course, is government, which commands how economics works. If they want us to be successful from real estate, they will quite often command for more stimulus to go into real estate. They will create the home uh, home buyer boost. They will lower stamp duty. They will play around with the mathematical tax rates to position people back into the fire economy to get the concept of economics moving. Now, one thing you can be uh, assured of here in Australia is the big rock of economics is real estate. And it's really quite different to other countries where real estate is important, but it is not actually the basis of the economy. And here is the polar opposite. 60% of all jobs are spin-off jobs from housing. And uh, again, you think about the plumber, the electrician, the, the gardener, you think about the pool company, you think about uh, selling TVs, you think about the idea that the local shops only exist because people live in houses. It's all spinning off housing. And housing is the game we play here in Australia. And of course, for the fire economic uh, bankers and insurers and realtors, they are creating communities in the middle of nowhere to sell their products. And again, their product is selling alone. And uh, there's obviously some greater fools buying their loans in some pretty subpar marketplaces to beat them at their own game. Here in Australia, we want to be in our top 10 places to own real estate. Now, and when I say top 10 places, I mean bigger, bigger cities. Now, the one risk which I think is important to understand inside of Australian real estate goes back to the idea of aging population dynamics. Now, as I alluded to, China's population will halve. And of course, uh, China's population halving is not only interesting, but it is a good example of being wary of the fact that certain places here in Australia will have the China effect. Now, in Japan, there is a concept known as IKEA. Yes, like the department store. The word IKEA translates to vacant house. Vacant house. Japan has close to 600,000 vacant homes. They are worthless. People won't buy them. They're worth a dollar. The vacant home effect inside of Japan is so big because so many people are dying every day of old age and because there is no younger population base to take over those homes, that real estate 
is losing huge, huge amounts of value to the point today you can go and buy a Japanese home for $5 if you want to. Now, most of those Japanese homes are not in Tokyo. They are in regional Japan, small communities where today younger people do not want to be a farmer. Younger people don't want to run the businesses of those communities. And so here in Australia, if we actually investigate and research and put our data hat on, regional communities, and when I say regional, I mean uh, you know smaller regional communities in our more rural settings have a much older population base and no population economics. There's no migrants moving to those places. And so you get this effect, the IKEA effect, happening in those areas. They basically are running out of young people to buy the houses And so if you look at the prices, they are very, very, very low. And of course, in Japan, they've got so low that they've now $5. Here in Australia, if we track where old people are passing away and where there's not enough young people coming through the funnel, it's in these rural regional settings. And this is where today you can go to broken places, broken suburbs or townships and homes are $50,000, $100,000 and they probably will become much less over time. So we as property investors need to be very, very vigilant around the population economics principle or the IKEA effect. We don't want our money tied up in an aging community where people pass away and there's no jobs and then there's an inability for people to want to live there. That's just a silly concept and something you need to be very, very wary of. There are so many places in Australia today which are overpriced by virtue of older Australians living there who uh, migrated out of a city to get a quieter life to basically live out their years. But there is no young workforce that wants to live there and if anything what we're starting to see now is actually a version of reverse migration where today some people you know three four hours from a major city are realizing maybe they just moved a little bit too far out and uh, are starting to climb their way back in so fire economics is the concept the command economy is another concept Obviously, the population economy is the third concept. We have some other economies here in Australia. One of them is, of course, global trade or the global economy. Now, Australia has done so well when tracking how it has performed at a global level. We punch above our weight. We've been very blessed. Australia has a lot of dirt. We have minerals in that dirt. Those minerals include coking coal and iron ore. When you have high-level coking coal that allows you to manipulate metal, which comes from iron, 
you can create iron ore. And of course, uh, if we track the performance of China over the last 30 years, it has gone from a second world country to one of the most modern places on earth. How has it done that? It has needed steel, steel to build cities, steel to build roads, hospitals, major pieces of infrastructure. China has funded Australia through Australia's second concept of economics, which is really its uh, resource economics, which comes from the western part of Australia. So if you go to Perth, there really is not led by fire economics, it's led by energy economics. Now, Australia and China have had a little bit of hostility of late when it came to Chinese vetoing Australian goods. Uh, but of course, China has started to run into energy crisis. It just has not enough, uh, basically, coal to run its country. And when we think about coal here in Australia, we don't really, I guess, you know, think so much about it because a lot of countries around the world are not dependent upon coal. Uh, some countries are nuclear, some countries do a lot of investing in green energy, some countries, you know, run their basically energy off gas. If you think of Germany and the issues with Russia, one of the biggest challenges is Germany today is in recession because it can't buy enough gas, enough energy. However, China is a uh, big carbon emitter using basically coal. And so of recent times, China sort of banned coal from Australia to, to basically, um, you know, meddle with Australia's economics. But what China has found out, without that coal, it really does run out of energy and you, the Chinese cities start to get energy shortages. So lo and behold, uh, a, a lot of coal is now going back into China. Now, again, we have been blessed here in Australia. If you want to think about how Australia has succeeded over the last three decades, we have helped what was the largest country in the world basically urbanize. They used our natural materials to urbanize their huge, huge country. Now, of course, if China is going to halve its population base, then arguably do they need as much natural resources? Well, probably they don't. So from a global perspective, Economically speaking, Australia having all of this coal still has a few countries which are going through their transformation and most notably India, the age profile, remember the pyramid concept of older people and younger people, a much younger country. It's not suffering the aging population effect of China whereby it probably doesn't need as much natural resources. India today is what China was 25 years ago. So, of course, uh, I believe the Australian government's done some work with India to open up trade routes and to create free trade activity. And I do believe probably 
for Australia to benefit from energy and not be so connected to just services-based fire economics, doing more business of selling iron ore into that marketplace will certainly allow for Australia to benefit uh, down the track from what it can sell. Australia's a very lucky country having all of these minerals. Not many countries around the world have what Australia has. And of course, uh, ultimately, energy at the moment is one of the big, big conversation pieces when it comes to the idea of global economics. Now, of course, there are other global trends which are occurring today. We have the BRICS countries, we have Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, all uh, on their way to doing trade without using the US greenback. We have obviously the idea of perhaps a power struggle for what is the world's global currency. Obviously, this started off the back of the United States basically not allowing the Russian ruble to trade. And of course, for many countries who don't necessarily see the war like uh, Western powers do, they saw this as a real uh, moment, a Minsky moment to change the way perhaps trade is done. And today, trade is being done in non-US dollars, in currencies that favour basically uh, individual countries. So you're getting India sell uh, by Russian gas, Russian oil, uh, using the Russian ruble, so to speak. This was not the case prior to the war. And of course, for a lot of commentary around what this means, is at the end that the US greenback is the world's currency? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I certainly think for a lot of people around the world, they would probably prefer to hold uh, the US dollar as opposed to the Chinese yuan or the Russian ruble. Again, here in Australia, we often don't think about this stuff because of the stability of the Australian dollar, but certainly if you're perhaps from South America, uh, you're used to hyperinflation, you have some of your money basically in US dollars to hedge inflation. And so will those people in downtown Bogota hoard Russian rubles? I don't know. I don't think so. I think we're still a long way off what they ma that may look like, though it is you know rather popular when it comes to the idea of economics. The other, I guess, thing to discuss is certainly inside the command-led economy. Obviously, commands create uh, the wealth effect, they can also create the risk effect. And uh, I mentioned this on a recent podcast. I mean, what we are seeing is today in Western countries, political migration. It's not something that I'm, uh, you know, used to talking about, whereby, you know, certainly people leave uh, dictatorships and flee countries and migrate to better lands. But certainly what we are seeing here 
and across the globe in Western countries is political idealism, political virtuism, driving uh, the way people think and, of course, where they want to live. And I mentioned this over in America. People are leaving red states to go to blue states and leaving blue states to go to red states to be around political uh, concepts that they prefer. And a lot of this is led through politicians, the command-led economy, the idea that the one of the biggest menaces going around is certainly the menace of uh, those politicians meddling with the way things work. Now, there is a concept also known as the California effect, whereby at a global level, we are seeing residents of California, businesses in California, heavily taxed compared to other states, and as such, just leaving California. And something like 1% of Californians have got up and left their state to find home in another state, which is a huge amount. If we think about the growth rate of populations, they usually here in Australia, we we want about 2% more people per annum, which is a huge, huge number, by the way. Uh, and if 1% of people uh, in your society are moving somewhere else, then of course, there's winners and losers to that from a real estate perspective. Here in Australia, we're, we're kind of blessed because of this, you know, perpetual concept of propping up the uh, fire economy with more migrants. But for certainly other countries, they don't participate in migration that way. They've got real industries, they build cars, they, uh, you know, in America, they're very, very good with their tech-based industries. You've got to hand that to them. So, uh, it's an interesting concept watching people go, well, the tax rate in this state is so bad, I'm going to go to that state. And you do see a little bit of this evolving inside of Australia, whereby we've had, you know, for example, Anastasia Palaszczuk start to do some crazy things by, you know, her commands, uh, let's tax people on properties they don't even uh, own in uh, our state, like Wow. Uh, obviously never got off the ground, but it is certainly a playbook which is is uh, is out there. And it can affect, obviously, how we think and feel about real estate. It's certainly been that way with the California effect inside of America. So businesses are also an economy inside of real estate. We've got to understand the business world. The large companies that are inside of uh, countries really are the major players of also the economy. Now, if we think of America, you've got basically Amazon, Apple, Microsoft. These companies are the dominant companies of America, Google, you can see America's major, major, uh, I guess, economy today is very, very smart. It's very tech orientated. It's very knowledge based. Obviously, America has the Fortune 500 system. It's such a large economy. There's over 500 major economies which are running uh, the the, the country and uh, 
again, jobs spin off those basically pieces of of community uh, business infrastructure. So we want to know what we do as a people. Now, here in Australia, it's very interesting as to what we do. We are farmers. If we look at the top 10 companies in Australia, some are farmers. West Farmers, for example. Um, and again, like Australia is is a full uh, food bowl country. We produce food and uh, we sell that food. We produce energy. If we think of the great companies inside of Australia's top 10, by way of example, you could have, you know, BHP. It's an energy producer. It produces uh, gold. It produces uh, iron ore. It produces all sorts of dynamics. Rio Tinto produces gas. It produces energy. And so that's our economy. Obviously, the fire economy is a big part of it. So we have bankers. You know, if you look at the top 10 companies in Australia, uh, names like the Commonwealth Bank of Australia uh, in are on that list. And so um, we are a country of fire economists. We are full of this concept that the fire engine goes to work. We sell more houses to more migrants. It's a big rock of our economics. If you were to look at the top 10 countries, uh, companies in America, you would not see a major bank in that list. It doesn't work that way. So it's interesting here in Australia, we do need the housing market to make our economics work, which is an interesting principle. Uh, two other players which are in Australian economics today, one is tech, Adlassian, um, Mike Cannon-Brooks. He owns a $110 million house in Sydney Harbour on Sydney Harbour, um, obviously uh, connected to, again, some of those bigger companies like Apple, Microsoft, uh, you know, that digital knowledge world. And CSL, which I've uh, talked about on my Melbourne series. CSL is today Australia's third biggest company and it's a uh, basically biomedical or biotech company and again we often don't really know what that is if we're not in the science space but it's very interesting I mean how do you work out how to uh, populate uh, feed the population of the world how do you create um, you know food from a science lab today uh, I believe Real chicken from a science lab is selling at something like $12.50 a kilo. A real chicken slaughtered and sent to Coles is selling for $8.50 a kilo. Uh, Ten years ago, that uh, science chicken was something like $250 a kilo. So a lot of these ideas of where the world is headed is driven through science and, of course, We've all learnt the names of AstraZeneca, Pfizer, these type of companies that we now know of. We, we didn't really think of them before. But certainly Melbourne is central to that idea that it is becoming a science city. So 
that's Australia. We have some industries which are probably responsible for a large percentage of Australia's wealth and, of course, the spin-off effects of jobs. So we got the fire economy, which is all services-based. We've got farmers. We've got miners. Uh, we've got uh, scientists. And we've got some knowledge workers today that complement the bankers, the insurers, and the uh, real estate investors or real estate REITs which is really how our model of the world works. And again, a lot of our world is propped up through energy. Can we sell energy to other people? Can we find a home for our coal and find a home for our iron ore? And of course, uh, the traditional economy is something that we often see on TV, interest rates going up and down, the jobless rate, uh, GDP, uh, recession dynamics, all of that stuff is a reflection of data points from a deeper economy, from the fire economy, uh, retail spending, from energy sales. All of that is connected to uh, the concept of really what next. And probably one economy I love sort of sharing information on is certainly the green economy. I think uh, green economics is very much the dynamic of, uh, you know, what next? And of course, look, I probably five, six, seven years ago when people asked me what the next boom was, I said it was going to be the knowledge boom, which uh, is really the current boom. We are going through the knowledge revolution. Chat GDP, uh, which I can never say. Um, we've got uh, blockchain tech. We've got energy storage. We've got, um, you know, robotics, AI. All of these things are the knowledge transformation of economics. And again, like Australians need to learn to live with AI, robotics, energy storage. Tesla buys all its lithium from Australia. We are heavily invested in energy production for knowledge-based jobs around the world. Uh, and of course, if we can improve our knowledge base connected to blockchain tech, AI, energy storage, and so forth, we will continue to grow with where we are in the current cycle, which in my viewpoint is the knowledge economy boom. And of course, Knowledge workers, if you like, have spatially transformed how real estate works, where they live, uh, what they do from home, how many people now live in a home because of the knowledge economy. Now, seven, eight years ago, when people asked me what was the next boom, my answer wasn't Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, uh, Perth. It was the next boom will be the knowledge boom. And of course, Arguably, the knowledge boom has started and will continue to be a thing over certainly this decade where we start to rewrite how uh, the society interfaces with, with uh, knowledge, which is exciting. And I've done shows on really that concept, smart cities, cities which are building infrastructure around the knowledge economy and and what that means, I've done 
discussions on where smart people live, where more people live with uh, knowledge-based degrees. And of course, is there a correlation on capital growth for property investors in those places? Now, I do think after this decade, we will go into the green economy boom. And of course, what that looks like uh, is still a little perhaps further down the radar than you know we can openly discuss here today. But certainly, uh, one thing that I'm preparing for is making sure that assets have decent thermal efficiency, that we don't suffer the Lismore effect, that we're not investing in places which won't exist because of climate challenges. Um, and, you know, you're buying real estate in sensible places which are underwritten really by fire economics. So guys, uh, obviously we have all sorts of economies here in Australia and uh, a lot of it, again, is comes back to how we receive information. Uh, and really there is a concept known as the bulldust economy, uh, which is links to the two concepts which I've taught you before, epistemology and agnotology, the idea of a production of ignorance and a, and a reality of truth. And uh, yeah, like a lot of what we're fed is, is really just ignorance, which is designed to make us believe that, uh, you know, that the system is always going to succeed. To play the system, play the fire department. You know, be close to where that's at. Don't fall for the IKEA model. It's not a good model. I don't believe in that model. And again, I think, you know, here in Australia, we've got into a little bit of debt over the last couple of years. And of course, Debt really does just punish the next generation because what it does is governments, they're earning, they're paying interest on debt rather than investing in infrastructure or people or society. So, of course, um, it doesn't feel like anything today because we have, you know, a good level of comfortable living here in Australia. But if the next generation doesn't get that critical piece of infrastructure, their life becomes more challenging. And again, really the uh, the latest debt levels of Australia have, have really been probably a, uh, not a problem so much for us, but certainly for the next generation, which again, just makes it harder for those people to uh, keep up with the rat wheel. And that's that's the reality facing much younger people today. They've got um, different conditions to deal with and uh, different things to fix. I think for a lot of them, they will look at green economics. They come through the system a little bit different, socially engineered a little bit different. I think in the 2030s, 2035s, there could be a lot of retrofitting of energy, uh, you know, thermal efficiency into real estate. So I'm certainly setting my portfolio up to consider, you know, what does 2030 actually look like? I want to be bulletproof for climate resilience in my portfolio, so I don't need to be bothered with it down the track. 
So we got the green economy, we got the knowledge economy we've discussed today, we've got the bulldust economy, the command economy, we've talked about the future economy, we've talked about the, the uh, global economy, uh, we've talked about the fire economy, and, and really the final economy, if you like, is the urban behavioural economy. And this is something I have guest lectured on at the University of Sydney, um, done a class or two there for some people interested in urban town planning. And really the concept is just that the model I think which works best for property investment is that today people need to be able to live, work and play in the same place. Uh, there needs to be a high level of knowledge and skill for that marketplace to have the wages to succeed for the real estate to double. Uh, the suburb also needs to be a wellness-based place whereby their real estate is connected to something nice, something scarce. People will pay more for scarcity. People will pay more for wellness and movement. You need to be able to get around. Uh, you don't necessarily just want to be, you know, miles away from anywhere. You you do need movement, whether it's high-speed rail, whether it's airports, whether it's uh, normal rail, whether it's trams, ferries, buses. Movement is important. And cities, sub-cities, regional cities with airports, uh, you know, the movement that that brings for those people, those knowledge workers is great, that live in those places. So if we can get uh, a great living experience, a great working experience, things to do and play with, smart people, nice places full of wellness and movement, uh, we have a great investment to hold on to. And really urbanization, if you like, is a big catalyst to property. And it's certainly been one of the drivers over the last 20 years as to why real estate has done well. Obviously, our population growth rate is 2%. You can't build, even the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, quoted that you just can't build properties to keep up with the population growth rate. And so people are always, always looking for a property and urbanization is a global concept. Uh, if we go back 40 years, 50% of the world lived in rural countries. Really today, there is no such thing as a rich rural country. Uh, there are only rich urban countries. And I've always thought that that is a telltale sign of how we should invest. If there's no such thing as a rich rural country, uh, why is there going to be in the future a rich rural village? I know there are some rock star, you know, quaint little villages full of wealthy uh, uh, millionaires that fly in on their helicopter. Uh, I, I've seen it firsthand. But for the most part, there is no such thing as a rich rural village. There are rich urban areas and that's just the way the world works and if you look at countries around the world the countries with the most successful economies have rich urban land masses go to dubai it's you know leaps ahead from where our urban land masses are if you go to 
um, uh, you know, Shanghai. Amazing. It's like stepping into the future. Uh, rich urban land masses. And uh, again, urbanization is a big driver of the concept of real estate growth and something that I think um, is worth considering. We don't want that IKEA effect. And again, here in Australia, we've been blessed with really most of our cities being quite egalitarian. They're quite nice in most places. Uh, today, if you go to America, America's debt levels are so high that its infrastructure is falling apart. It looks like a third world country in many places. Many places look like ultra rich. Many places look so dirty and run down and people are living on the street. Again, like when uh, there's uh, high levels of debt, uh, infrastructure you know, can't, can't be polished up. And again, you get this fragmentation of what's nice and what's not. So urbanization is a critical part for the fire economy, for population economics, but urbanization as well comes with a carrot and stick. The stick is we don't want to be where people will struggle to make ends meet and where government won't invest in infrastructure in the future because the government itself doesn't have enough money to spread around into improvement of a neighborhood. And if we get the ugly duckling going backwards neighborhood and everyone has a limited budget to spend on their assets, you don't get this upgrading effect. You more or less get a depreciation effect of the look and feel of an area. And uh, assets go down in value. Assets go up in value in areas which can keep up with uh, what that looks like. And so I've always taught the urban behavioral economy is economy that sits with inside uh, basically urbanization that the world is urbanizing. Uh, you know, over the next, uh, by mid-century, 76% of people on planet Earth will live in a city. By, uh, you know, the next century turning over to its, uh, its, its next, you know, 2200, uh, something like 93% of people will live in an urban area. So, Understanding that statistic that urbanization is a thing, uh, that if we have a property which is walkable to something nice and you don't need a car, how valuable is that? How valuable is being able to walk somewhere when there's 20 million people living in a city? How valuable is it to walk somewhere when there's 2 million more cars on the road than there are today? Again, these are some of the principles we have to future economize what we're doing and how valuable is a park next to an asset five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? How valuable is it that you're next to the tram station or the ferry stop? How valuable? So quite often we don't consider... I guess, the urban landscape, and that's why I've just tried to simplify it through an economy known as the urban behavioral economy. Live, work, play, skill. Skill equals 
pay packets, higher pay packets equals higher house prices. Uh, uh, Wellness, wellness equals something which is going to be unique as the world continues to uh, populate populate into urban land masses. And Australia plays this game. We want we want 15 more million people over the next three decades. We want a new Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane over the next few decades. Again, where does the value lie? Uh, today, real estate is still a value race. And I try and teach this to people I show property to. Your budget might be 650, but you're buying on top of a park. Like, I know that doesn't feel ultra amazing right now. Give it five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Your retirement and that city's got more movements, more people. Uh, scarcity will ultimately shine through. All right, folks. Uh, I feel like I might be starting to waffle. So I'm going to stop there. But I hope you enjoyed the many different economies of the real estate marketplace. We'll talk again soon. I've covered off a couple of these things in the past, but I thought I'd do a, another show on it. I think it's worth its own show. So thanks for tuning in. I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.